Hello, and welcome to the Inequality Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Durloff, the director of the Stone Center for Research on Wealth, Inequality, and Mobility. Thanks for joining us. Stephen Durloff, and welcome to this edition of the Inequality Podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to uh, introduce today's guest, Guido Alfani, who is a professor of economic history at Bocconi University. In my judgment, he is pretty clearly the world's leading expert on the history of inequality from the vantage point of both historians as well as economists. And I don't say that uh, just because he's in front of me, but because I have benefited so much from, uh, from his work for many years. Guido has a book that is coming out this December with Princeton University Press called As Gods Among Men, A History of the Rich in the West. And I had the privilege of having uh, the opportunity to read a draft copy of it. And it's really just beautifully written. So I'm I'm very pleased to uh, to recommend that to the audience. But really, I want to focus on Guido as a uh, an extremely important scholar of inequality. He is the exemplar of, a, of an intellectual thinking about inequality. And what I mean by that is that some of his work looks at pre-industrial inequality. Other dimensions of it are really associated with him as a demographer. And he has been an important voice in terms of understanding the consequences of COVID for inequality. So with that all in mind, we don't welcome and thank you so much for, for joining me. Thank you all, Stephen. So I think in uh, in this conversation, I actually want to focus on the book because of its uh, the combination of the breadth and the depth. And I think maybe for the audience, I would say as background, that a book that is surveying inequality over such a long time horizon and across so many countries, one way to read the book is to read about the panoply of Western history and inequality and ask what commonalities does one see at different points in time in different locations? And another, of course, is to be less coarse-grained, to use a physicist's turn, and to look at particular contexts. And so what I'm hoping we can do is talk about the book from those different perspectives. Well, I think that uh, from a descriptive point of view, first of all, we find apparently becoming rich was easier than uh, than usual. And usually these uh, phases are connected to some sort of uh, innovation or technological advancement. So think about the phase of the opening of the Atlantic trade routes uh, in the early 16th century, or think about the Industrial Revolution, or then think about at least the first decades of the computer and, and information age. However, not everything has to do with kind of entrepreneurship and the ability to exploit these institutions, because before that, there was, for example, a phase during which uh, taking the path of nobility was the easiest in relative terms, but to become, uh, become very, very affluent. There is also something to be said about the fact that these phases in which it is relatively easy to build a fortune also come to an end. And somehow this is connected to how new wealth becomes old wealth. The generation of the big innovators leads to the establishment of, of dynasties and everything becomes kind of more more rigid, right? And this contributes, I think, to lead to an end of these, uh, these phases. So following that up, I wanted to ask you about the other tale. In other words, one sees certain regularities about uh, the rich. Another dimension, of course, is the disadvantaged. In other words, understanding what broad mechanisms, again, causes explanations we have for the emergence of, of poor people or very disadvantaged people uh, across locations and time. So, I mean, if we, if we look at the upper tail, um, looking, for example, at 
top wealth shares, then we have this impression that, uh, well, first, you know, they tend to increase on, across time. Then there is this regularity that what happens to the top wealth share tends to, to shape the overall distribution in terms of uh, a society becoming more or less uh, unequal. So the, if the wealth of the 1% increases, generally speaking, also generally inequality as a measure, for example, with the GD index will tend to increase. But the problem with these measures is that they kind of look always at the same percentage of population, right? While we maybe want also to allow for the rich becoming more abundant in time in as a proportion of population. And then you have to look at something different, uh, which uh, strangely maybe uh, can be done uh, today more easily for the pre-industrial period than for a modern society, because for the pre-industrial period, we have more information about the entire distribution, right? So we have at the same time that the uh, wealth become richer compared to the average and more abundant. But this also means that the rest tend to be pushed down, right? Because there will be a growing, a growing portion of population which loses uh, formal uh, ownership of, uh, of property, basically. And, uh, and these processes are kind of connected. You have sort of uh, uh, social uh, or social polarization. Then the problem is that, you know, if you think at the past, especially if you think at a relatively remote past, those who are at the bottom cannot be pushed or turned down because otherwise they would like go below subsistence, basically. And then society would become unstable. So the point becomes that there is some sort of change in how society is organized. Because as the rich become richer and the poor become poorer, the rich have to contribute more to kind of help the poor survive. But usually this happens by means of charity, right? So the society as a whole becomes like organized in a nastier way towards the poor who become more and more dependent upon the goodwill of the rich without losing much in terms of their actual access to resources. Only they, they do that because somebody willingly kind of, you know, allows for uh, something to be, got, to, be, to, 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 be given, uh, to be given back in a sense. So it seemed that you actually have two interesting themes in, in what you've said. One of them is that there are mechanisms in societies that I will say are fairly universal in which uh, some aspects of destitution are addressed by the rich in terms of avoiding uh, uh, political instabilities that are induced by people that uh, you know that are sufficiently desperate in how they're living. But then the other side of it was the, uh, and it was really resonated when you referred to the distinction between new and old wealth, and that is that new wealth is generating things and is 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 producing, creating new markets, exploiting new technologies uh, and the like. Old wealth is more uh, protective of itself. In other words, that, uh, that somehow for the entrepreneurial energy, I don't know if you want to, uh, if we're going to be Schumpeterian about this and talk about the uh, uh, the animal spirits of of, uh, of capitalism. If they uh, if they're less if they're less uh, prominent in the lives of the rich or in what they're doing, then it's the protectiveness of the uh, status that becomes fundamental. And that by itself presumably also leads to political instability. In other words, it's one thing to have a group of rich people that are conditional on having reached that perpetuate themselves. A different question is whether or not other people have access. I mean, I would say, yes, that's clearly one of the factors which can bring forward the uh, political instability. Then, of course, it is not, uh, say, the only factor, but uh, this is definitely something that might lead to 
reaction against uh, a very high concentration of economic resources, especially when that seems to also match a very high concentration of political resources. That's when it is easier that you, you know, can get political consensus against trying to change this kind of established and, and somehow ossified system. Which is what happens, for example, in the, I think this is what happens in many Western countries, including the U.S. at the beginning of the 20th century, when there was some reaction against what in the U.S. was called the money trust, which uh, was uh, you know, supposed to be dominating American, American economy. And uh, uh, to the left and to the right of the political you know, arena, uh, everybody was kind of fearful that they would also come to dominate the politics. And that's when reaction you know, takes place in in the form of antitrust law and blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, you know, world wars make everything complicated from that point of view. So having started with the very, very broad picture and looking for the commonalities, I thought we maybe I, I'd like to hear, ask that you could speak something about the transitions in history with respect to the status of the reaction, maybe the, uh, the persistence of the same people in the upper tail. Yes, these phases of transition, I mean, if we, if we look at the, at, at the phases of exploration, it is... Uh, easier to become rich, they, they tend to be associated to a, a kind of innovation which uh, has a disruptive power over the established uh, situation, which creates the possibility for uh, new players to enter to enter into the into the scene. And then we have already talked about how these phases of explorations can um, end. Of course, it's not all about uh, technology again, uh, because, for example, other processes, historical processes have uh, led to new opportunities. Think uh, about the uh, expansion of the public administrations in the early modern period. Many people became rich, at least, you know, fairly rich by exploiting these opportunities or the simple fact that the state needed more resources. Uh, um, in, again, in the pre-industrial period, somebody who, who we often found almost fireably among the, the, the very richest in a given community is the tax collector, the tax farmer, right? And they were also, you know, much hated, yeah. uh, but they were like private individuals. So they, the, the state was kind of playing the game. It's not us, it's the evil tax mm -hmm. farmer. And, uh, you know, at the moment of the French Revolution, they, they hung uh, seven of them. And there is more, I mean, another very important transition, but this is something which takes place uh, slowly across time is, you know, uh, the, the kind of uh, cultural uh, transformation which uh, which leads finance to be more acceptable as a as an area in which you can uh, uh, build uh, a fortune. This was totally unacceptable in the Middle Ages, and today I, I would say that based on the metrics that we can uh, collect, finance in relative terms has become much more important than it ever was in, in history as a as a part uh, as a part to wealth. So I wanted us to turn to think to more of a discussion of the status of the rich in societies. And so I'm motivated to some extent by Elizabeth Anderson's work on, and other philosophers on relational inequality, which have argued that the uh, the injustices of certain distributions, of certain you know, disparities, don't have to do with the absolute levels. In other words, the presence of disadvantaged people who are, are poor people, but it's actually about status. It's about respect and esteem. And... I was hoping to hear kind of how you might characterize in very broad strokes how the uh, the status, the esteem of the very rich have waxed and waned across centuries. You've already said something very important about that in terms of the uh, earlier period of, of early Middle Ages versus middle Middle Ages, mm -hmm. maybe the place I, I should fix it. But I was, I was hoping you could uh, you could talk about that part generally. So an interesting thing is that 
I mean, the, the fact of, of accumulating large fortunes becomes more so socially acceptable the moment when a role is found for the rich. Because if you look at the Middle Ages, you start out with a situation in which being rich uh, is, uh, is basically the same as being a sinner, and the sin is avarice or, or greed. Right? There is the, no other way around that. So if you are commoner, of course, because the fact that a noble has an exceptional access to resources is not a problem because that's considered to be coherent with God's plan and blah, blah, blah. But by culture and theology were totally clear about the fact that rich were sinners, so they shouldn't have poor should wealth for itself because they would have led to a series of behavior which were you know, contrary to the Christian idea of a perfect society. But then something, something starts to, to change in the 15th century, right? And you see these in, uh, again, beginning with high culture, but I would argue this reflects a societal transformation. So a role for the rich is found, and the role is twofold. First, the rich are seen from the 15th century on as those who save to the benefit of the you know, collectivity in the sense that in times, especially in times of crisis, the collectivity, the city or you know, the polity in general can tap into their private resources by means of loans, by means of forced loans, by means of taxation. Right? The resources are there and they can be used by the, by the community. And the second function of the rich from the 15th century is magnificence, so to do great deeds by building their palaces, by establishing churches, monasteries, and so forth and so on, the rich make the city splendid to some degree to the advantage of everybody. Now, this is the beginning of a process of transformation, which again makes the fact of being rich socially acceptable. It clarifies what is the role of the rich in society, while in an earlier period there was basically no role for them in a perfect society. And it is also the moment when the rich themselves start perceiving themselves not as sinners, but as, a, but as a virtuous individuals. So I could make many examples of rich from the Middle Ages who thought, you know, who felt that maybe their soul was at risk and then you know, were securing like Cosimo de Medici, Cosimo the Elder did in the early in the early 15th century, they were kind of securing bars of absolution from the Pope. And so, of course, he was also the banker of the pop, so maybe he got a discount for this. I don't know, but, but this was the problem. But from this moment on, they start perceiving themselves as virtuous individuals, finding, you know, certain virtues which are proper, for example, to the mercantile class and so forth and so on. And from this point of view, the Reformation only strengthens the process. The process was already underway. I mean, think about, the, the, about Calvinism and the fact that uh, economic success starts to be seen as proof of belonging to the of belonging to the elected. So if if this proof of divine favor it can be seen full unto itself, right? But more generally, because the Reformation, the idea is that the pursuit of economic success kind of answers somewhat religious calling. That's what Max Weber called Berufnis, and this continues, right? This continues to this day in a in a in a sense without ever negating the social functions which are assigned to the rich, which pretty much remain the same, in particular that of being available to contribute to pay at least part of the bill during major crises, right? And this is maybe a problem for today, I would say. But. Yeah, th those are, th that's very interesting. And, and I think to follow it up, it also has to do with the uh, capacity of, for justifications for the rich 
to uh, to adapt to different circumstances. And so the first idea you put on the table was the uh, justification for the rich is they were the purveyors of charity. Another is that they were the insurance policy, so to speak, for a society in crisis. I think maybe the nuance that one would associate with uh, more recent periods is that the that they are the uh, progenitors of uh, technical change, of development, of growth. And so the, the manifestation today is, is supply side economics, uh, uh, you know, and and it's and it's many very many variations. But I think the general point I would make is that an ideology now emerges and supported by the rich, and to the extent to which it is uh, believed in society makes inequality stable in other words just that somehow the uh the inequalities do as you said they have these social goods associated with them as we go to a more you know secularization didn't end that possibility of doing that it changed what the uh the terms of the debate were and that that seems to me a, a, a universal in, in things that you you've been describing might you say something about the industrial revolution and its role in the uh as a progenitor of modern inequality I will mention that uh, my colleague uh, James Robinson is actually working on this and is uh, is is ma making arguments that it's the the immediate link between the industrial Re revolution and inequality per se is missing many many issues because in terms of new opportunities that were created. So, having given a a plug for my dear colleague, let me uh, ask what your your thinking is about that. Well, I think that definitely the industrial revolution is one of these phases or florations during which it is relatively easy to become uh, rich. Uh, this is the case for uh, Britain, a few other areas in the 18th century, so during the you know, first industrial revolution, and then for many more countries during the 19th century with the second industrial revolution. I mean, you can, we can make example, think of a, of a, of a, of a guy like uh, Richard Arkwright, who started out uh, with a very humble position. He was a wig maker. And uh, his first patent in the 1760s is for a, is for a waterproof pigment for, for wigs. And only later he starts to, you know, applying his ingenuity to the, to the cotton industry. And he ends up uh, uh, inventing the, the famous water frame, which dramatically uh, improves uh, the, both the, the quality and the strength of the cotton yarn and, um, and reduces the price of producing it. So another type of transition has been talked about in different ways by Thomas Piketty and Walter Scheidel, and that's the effect of war on inequality and on the on the elite. And so I would like to know your kind of your thinking about that perspective. Yeah. So Piketty has uh, strongly argued for you know World War One and World War Two reducing inequality by physically destroying capital in World War Two, destroying financial capital after World War One due to war hyperinflation. Then Scheidel. Uh, as you know, kind of try to make this argument more general, focusing on the leveling power of catastrophes. I agree about uh, World War II and World War I, uh, of course, without forgetting that this is also a period when we have uh, a very steep increase in uh, progressive taxation. So that's also part of the story, which is connected to the, to the wars themselves, yes. of course. But before, uh, before the war wars, the, the problem is that First, not many wars were very destructive. The very destructive ones are really the exception. And in a pre-industrial context, the fact is that uh, uh, war tended to lead to increases in per capita taxation in fiscal systems, which were regressive. So the point is, there were two uh, countervailing mechanisms. One was promoting inequality growth because of increased taxation due to 
greater need, greater financial needs for war and defense. And the other instead was reducing inequality by means of devastation, leveling, destruction of capital. In a pre-industrial context, I would argue what usually prevails is the first, so war tends to increase inequality, not to reduce it, with one exception which I could make, which is Germany during the Thirty Years' War, so 1618 to 1648, but that was the most destructive conflict of pre-industrial Europe, Coupled with, in the 1620s, the worst plague affecting Germany after a Black Death. So it's really an exceptional situation. Otherwise, I, I, I made a point, and I kind of, you know, I would continue to insist on this. The, the, the net effect tends to be inequality increasing because what prevails is the impact of increases in taxation, not only immediately during the wars, but also after, because, of course, the war also leads to increases in the public debt, which then has to be serviced and which, by the way, is something which advantages directly the economic elites because it was all owned by the economic elites and usually gave also a nice return. So to follow up that, I, I'd make two observations. One of them, I think something you said is very important, is the relationship between wars themselves and subsequent government policies. And taxing is going to be, taxation is one dimension. Another is the changes in the social contract that were associated with the violence and the devastation. And so, the, you know, the fact that the United Kingdom uh, only went to a full franchise after the First World War, I think, is understandable in the context of the of the British casualties. Similarly, the, um, you know, the responses of the American government in terms of the GI Bill. You know, which massive created massive ex expansion of American education. That's part of the parcel of what it meant to uh, to to ask a people for a people to have made made sacrifices. Another dimension of your work is very contemporary, and that is studying COVID and inequality. And done partially in addition to which, looking at the the way in which uh, past pandemics have affected society. So, could you uh, could you describe your 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 thinking, your findings? So, if we look at the numbers we have. It seems that the richest part of society was really affected very little compared to other strata by COVID-19 in economic terms. And they were also less affected in terms of illness and mortality. So, you know, uh, it's an advantage of the rich during this most recent crisis, which comes quite uh, clearly from the evidence we have. Problem is, if the metrics are, for example, the wealth share of the top 1% or the top 5%, then this means that compared to previous crises, like you know, I could mention the Black Death in the, in the 14th century, but you know, I could also make kind of more recent examples. But compared to previous crises, the, the, the rich seem to have become exceptionally resilient against crises. Then the other problem is that this resilience is also built upon an exceptional ability to avoid contributing more than others to pay the bill, which is a problem because it means that if truly the one of the if truly the key social function of the rich from the 15th century until recently was to contribute to the community in times of crisis, they are no longer playing that role. Now, very few countries, as far as I know, in Western in in the West, have try to, you know, even marginally make the richest population contribute more. I could mention Spain in some respects, the Netherlands, but these are kind of very small, very modest increases to the progressivity of the fiscal system. And in general, it has been impossible. I mean, in a country like me, like, like mine, so, so, so Italy, it has been impossible to, to, to have the richest 
contribute a bit more, even in a temporary manner compared to the others. During COVID-19 and even before, during the uh, sovereign debt crisis of 2011, which hit Italy very, very badly. And so, you know, the problem here is that if the rich stop fulfilling this social function, which I think is clearly established in Western culture, then these might also lead to some reactions. And in fact, I think that their uh, general, say, unwillingness to contribute in this way, which is basically through taxation, right? not through charity, because of course, we could mention some super rich who did uh, a great job in you know, funding research, helping certain countries, but it's a different thing. I, I have to note the University of Chicago and John D. Rockefeller. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but that's a different thing. The problem here is taxation, okay? So it seems that maybe this unwillingness during COVID-19 has contributed to create some awareness that maybe you know, the richest strata weren't doing what society expected. This might lead to, I mean, I think it's too early to, to, to say whether this might lead to the, the establishment of political platform, which might result winning in some, in some form and then lead to institutional change. And then, of course, all these might also be forgotten very quickly. Uh, but who knows? Well, as an American, of course, I want to talk about American exceptionalism. And so the serious point being that I was wondering if you could say something about the distinct nature of the the dynamics of the rich and inequality in America versus Europe. So, of course, um, I mean, American exceptionalism is, is a concept which sometimes is is, is abused. So I, I, I mean, I personally would first highlight the communities across the West and then yes. as a second step, look at what uh, makes the U.S. stand out compared to other countries. But, you know, there are also differences. And one which uh, strikes me is that if you look at the U.S. in comparison with other Western countries in the 19th century, they are basically the most egalitarian country, together with Canada. But by the second half of the 20th century, that has changed radically. And the United States turned out as being one of the most inegalitarian, the most inegalitarian, surely, among uh, large Western countries, right? And so, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting historically how this could have happened. And my two cents on this as a non-American, so, you know, I'm looking at this from the outside, is that I think that all the discourse which has developed in the U.S. during the 19th century about the U.S. being uh, an exceptionally egalitarian and mobile society, right, somehow conditions the self-understanding of the Americans today while when they are no longer uh, egalitarian at all, they are less egalitarian than the others if you look at the metrics in terms of wealth distribution. And there is a problem of self-perception which is, uh, you know, which uh, is shown basically by all these uh, sociological surveys which suggest, for example, that compared to the average European, the average uh, American is uh, is worse at estimating how far he or she is from I don't know the the, the CEO in his uh, or company in terms of income. The Americans tend to overestimate the social mobility of their country, and by the way, also the Europeans overestimate the social mobility of the U.S. because today social mobility is higher <laughs> in the average European country than in the U.S. So I think that all this problem of perception continues to be, you know, 
conditioned by the kind of, ex of exceptionalism that the US enjoyed in the 19th century. So there is not a complete awareness, at least in, gen in the general public, of the fact that that exceptionalism has actually changed entirely, becoming the opposite. Well, there's a, um, a story that's from the 1972 presidential campaign that, that speaks to this. So the most liberal candidate ever nominated in the US was George McGovern, who ran against Nixon. One of the things he did is he proposed a 100% inheritance tax over a million dollars. He quickly withdrew it, but that was actually on the table. And the claim was that the people who were most vehemently opposed to it were not the rich. It was blue-collar people who wanted their children to be rich. And so this absolute belief, this deep belief in the possibility of upward mobility, you know, was ingrained and was conditioning uh, political preferences. And so I think that it's not, it's not something that's necessarily tethered to reality or tethered to facts. And, and as you pointed out, the survey evidence really is very strong of this exaggerated view of, uh, of American mobility. And an important nuance you gave to that is that may be the echo of something from, from the past, but that that's, uh, that's part and parcel of why you see very different rules for the degree of progressivity of taxes, the generosity of the social welfare state, and I think social norms. And so, you know, I'm very sympathetic to arguments that quite a while ago, Paul Krugman has made and others, of course, have made that if you look at CEO salary differences in the United States, compensation differences, you can tell something, you know, productivity is not irrelevant, but there really are norms for these things. And that, that seems to be part of, of what you would put there. Yes. You know, this is just a delightful conversation. I'm very grateful. And let me uh, say that your, your, the book is Gods Among Men, A History of the Rich in the West. will be out uh, with Princeton in, in December, and I, I heartily recommend it. Thank you very much for joining me. Thanks a lot. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. Gaius Gracchus had somehow managed to escape the temple and was now running across the Tiber River. After clearing the bridge, he couldn't resist the urge to turn around, and what he saw stopped him dead in his tracks. The temple on Aventine Hill had been completely overtaken. Gaius could see that his followers were outnumbered and fleeing, and knew most would not escape the angry mob. His eyes widened as they followed the mob to the bottom of the hill. It wouldn't be long before the angry horde would overtake the bridge. As he turned his face away and looked at the distance, he realized he could run, but there was nowhere to hide. Instead, he made his way under the bridge and approached the edge of the river. As he looked down at his reflection over the gently rippling water, he unsheathed the blade that he had at his side. Before the mob could cross the bridge, Gaius Gracchus decided to take his own life, to die upon the banks which birthed Rome. The life and times of the Gracchus brothers, Tiberius and Gaius, are what many historians see as the beginning of the end for the Republic. They are emblematic figures of their time, controversial politicians who served during a watershed moment for the Republic. Now what made the brothers catalysts for Rome's downfall? Well, it all started with land reform. While much is ancient history, the issues facing land redistribution resonate to this very day. The Gracchus brothers were politically active between 133 and 121 BC, at a time when land was abundant in the Roman Republic following a series of conquests. 
It laid claim to the modern-day countries of Italy, Greece, Spain, Portugal, Tunisia, and parts of Croatia and Turkey. Its power and reach had never been greater, yet among its citizens grew unrest, much of which had to do with land. The Republic's strength was rendered through the military, and only landowners could serve in the military. At a time when the army was extremely active, soldiers were unable to tend to their farms, and the family-owned estates fell into disrepair or were vulnerable to raids from enemy forces. The enlisted owners of these small plots had little choice but to abandon the land or sell it at a loss. Now, those who could once sustain themselves on their family's land were forced to move onward to Rome in search of work, straining the resources of the capital city. To make matters worse, this enabled wealthier Romans, particularly members of the senatorial class, to establish mega-plantations called latifundia. These were large, agricultural estates that relied on slave labor to produce profitable crops like grain, olive oil, or wine. This newly acquired land enriched the prosperity of elites and further impoverished landless Roman citizens, leading to a vastly unequal society. The eldest Gracchus brother, Tiberius, based his political stance on land mismanagement and dedicated his tenure to fighting the highly unequal Roman political class. It should be noted that this is the dominant account of Rome's contemporary historians, though modern scholars have questioned many aspects core to this perspective, including the extent to which slave labor had been used on the latifundia, as well as the impact that those latifundia had in creating inequality and unrest. That all notwithstanding, let's take a moment to get to know the Gracchus brothers themselves. Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus and his younger brother Gaius Sempronius Gracchus were born into a family with an impressive lineage. Their grandfather was a military general and hero of the Second Punic War. Their father served twice as consul, the highest elected position of the Roman Republic that essentially made him the chairman of the Senate. Their mother even held significant influence in society, so much so that following her death, the city actually voted to erect a statue in her honor. Yet despite this illustrious pedigree, the hereditary nature of Rome's stratified social classes meant that the Gracchus brothers were plebeians, members of the commoner class of free Roman citizens. While the plebeians held little formal status or power in society as individuals, they wielded significant political clout as a body. Following a plebeian revolt some 300 years earlier that threatened to upend societal order, the patrician class agreed to establish the plebeian tribune, an elected position only available to members of the plebeian class. They provided a check on power against the Roman Senate, having the ability to propose legislation, summon the Senate, and even veto the council. And tribunes were sacrosanct. Anyone who physically assaulted one could be sentenced to death. Tiberius Gracchus, the elder brother, was elected as one of the tribunes in 133 BC and focused his attention on the Latifundia and the growing inequality. According to the Greek historian Plutarch, Tiberius famously made this remark as he toured the Roman landscape. The wild beasts that roam over Italy have every one of them a cave or a lair to lurk in. But the men who fight and die for Italy enjoy the common air and light indeed, but nothing else. Houseless and homeless, they wander about with their wives and their children. Tiberius found a very receptive audience in the plebeians, and his plans for land distribution proved incredibly popular. Eventually, he proposed a lex agraria, or agrarian law, 
to revive an existing limit on the amount of land that one person could own. Any land that exceeded the limit, including newly appropriated lands, would become public land and would be redistributed to the poor. The plan would simultaneously enrich the lives of the plebeian class while also reversing the influx of poor citizens to the capital city. This proposal wasn't especially controversial in itself. In fact, it had been supported by one of the councils, despite it not being popular among the wealthy landowners. Yet Tiberius earned his reputation as a controversial figure when he proposed this legislation directly to the plebeian assembly, bypassing the Senate. In response, the Senate convinced the other plebeian tribune, Marcus Octavius, to veto the legislation, which he dutifully did each time Tiberius tried to introduce it. To combat this, Tiberius actually convinced the plebeian assembly to depose Marcus Octavius, and it worked. With him gone, Tiberius was finally able to pass his land redistribution legislation. However, this move deeply offended his superiors. In a political culture that placed high value on the status quo and deference to authority, Tiberius' actions were considered dangerous, an attempt by a plebeian from a well-known family to amass greater power and influence. The Senate attempted to hamper this legislation by refusing to fund the land commission that was set up to oversee its enforcement. But fortuitously, at around the same time, the king of an ally nation died and bequeathed his land and fortune to Rome. Tiberius then proposed using part of that fortune to fund the land commission, and this legislation also passed the plebeian assembly. It was yet another highly provocative move, as the assembly was now dealing with foreign affairs, something traditionally that had been left up to the Senate. Finally, when Tiberius announced his re-election bid the following year, the Senate was anxious and again enraged. Traditionally, public officials served in a position only once. Re-election to any major office in Rome happened very seldomly. This move so angered the Senate that some of its members charged after Tiberius, armed with stones and pieces of broken benches, and they would end up killing him and nearly 300 of his supporters, in clear defiance of the sacrosanct protection afforded to plebeian tribunes. A lasting but fragile legacy beyond his death, the agrarian law remained in place, and the land commission continued its work. Senate maneuvers would eventually slow down the commission's work, but not before it had redistributed an estimated 3,200 square kilometers of land and resettled 70 to 130,000 residents. And this is where his brother Gaius Gracchus now comes into the picture. He started his political career as an elected member of the land commission that Tiberius had established. Undeterred by his brother's murder, he ran for tribune in 123 BC, was elected, and promptly pursued even more radical reforms aimed at addressing grievances from a wider audience. He put forward legislation that would provide uniforms for soldiers at the expense of the state, build more roads, found more colonies, and required juries to include more representation from the poorer classes of society. He also aspired to establish grain subsidies for poor citizens, grant full citizenship to Rome's allies, and, like his brother, redistribute land to the poor. These reforms also made Gaius incredibly popular among the commoner class, so much so that, at least according to some sources, he was elected for a second term as tribune without even officially running the plebeian assembly just spontaneously and unanimously picked him to serve another term. The Senate, on the other hand, was not going to sit idly by. They backed another plebeian tribune, Marcus Drusus, 
who would paradoxically offer legislation that was even more generous to poor citizens in an attempt to usurp Gaius's hold over the plebeians. Where Gaius proposed one colony outside of Carthage, Marcus Drusus proposed 12 colonies capable of accommodating up to 3,000 families each. Still, Gaius stood for re-election a third time in 121 BC, but was defeated. He nonetheless maintained a loyal group of supporters who staunchly defended his political legacy. Eventually, these supporters would clash with members of the Plebeian Assembly who wanted to repeal Gaius's law establishing a colony near Carthage. The conflict turned violent, with Gaius's supporters stabbing an assembly attendant to death. This provided enough justification for the Senate to pursue a more direct approach at stifling Gaius. They passed the Senatus Consultum Ultimum, or Final Decree of the Senate, which allowed magistrates to use or support deadly action against anyone deemed an enemy of the state. The consul at the time, Lucius Epimius, actually gathered a militia to find and kill Gaius. By this time, Gaius and his army had already taken up defenses at the Temple of Diana on the Aventine Hill. Epimius and his militia quickly surrounded the temple, and although Gaius was able to escape and cross the Tiber River, he ultimately decided to take his own life before Epimius's men could reach him. Staunch opposition to the Gracchus brothers themselves notwithstanding, many of the reforms continued after their death. Tiberius's land reform law continued, and the land commission was disbanded only after all public land had been distributed. As for Gaius's reforms, many of his proposed colonies were established, and the subsidized grain bill survived and remained intact for 150 years. But there were other, more sinister consequences. Unabashed disregard for protections afforded to tribunes like Tiberius, as well as the state-sanctioned violence that brought down Gaius, established terrible precedents for the Roman Republic. The Gracchan reforms also inflamed already tense relations between the aristocratic classes and the poor classes. Without politicians like the Gracchus brothers to champion the causes of the poor, these relations only continued to deteriorate. A similar rift began to develop between the Plebeian Assembly and the Senate. As Tiberius and Gaius had demonstrated, it was possible to use the office of tribune to circumvent the Senate, which upset the political order and the more elite citizens who made up the Senate. Scholars remain uncertain over whether Tiberius and Gaius really cared about the plight of the commoner class, or whether they were capitalizing on those issues as a means to become more dominant members of society, a way to climb the social ladder in spite of their plebeian heritage. Likely, it was some combination of the two. But what remains clear is that the brothers touched a nerve in society and unearthed a profound sense of unrest that would only grow worse over time. Their radical efforts would lead to increases in political violence, social factionalism, and political infighting, three critical elements of the Republic's ultimate downfall in 27 BC. Thanks to Fawaz Hafiz for all his assistance in producing this segment. Be sure to check the show notes for more information about the Gracchus brothers and the history of the late Roman Republic.
The Inequality Podcast is a production of the Stone Center for Research on Wealth Inequality and Mobility at the University of Chicago. It is hosted by myself, Stephen Durloff, along with Damon Jones, Jeffrey Wadka, and Ariel Khalil. This episode was recorded, sound engineered, and produced by Eric Gepper with support from Gerardo Espinal Franco. Thanks as well to the Center's Executive Director, Grace Hammond, for all her support. Please consider liking, subscribing, and sharing this podcast among your friends, and send any questions or feedback to ucstonecenter at gmail.com. That's all for now. Thanks for joining us.